This is Mark Lemley from Stanford Law School, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 65 of IP Fridays. Today's guest is Jason Bernstein, partner at Barnes Thornburg, talking about privacy, data security, and hacking. But before we jump into the interview, I want to talk about trademark renewal scams. You might recall that we talked about trademark renewal scams with Peter Sloan on this very podcast in episode 23, and he had successfully fought against trademark renewal scams. And now I found a very promising article in Lexology, a website where you get a lot of news about legal issues, where I found out that the Swedish government took action against six individuals of OMIH Trademarks and Designs Registration Office. Um, OMIH looks very similar to OHIM, which was the former name of the EU IPO. In June, a Swedish court found six individuals guilty of various offenses, including attempted fraud and aiding and abetting attempted fraud, and some even received uh, jail sentences up to a year in length. I really do hope that a lot of governments will take this as a good example and follow this example. The same article says that IP Australia has also tried to prevent consumers from being duped with warning letters but has not yet taken legal action against any of these trademark renewal scammers. They tried different measures like hiding the address for service from web crawlers and highlighting the issue on their website, but that doesn't really uh, deter the uh, trademark renewal scammers. The German Federal Court of Justice uh, recently issued a decision in a similar matter, in Germany and maybe in other countries as well, um, people who are not lawyers are trying to offer services for filing trademarks. And at least in Germany, so far, there was not a lot resistance uh, against this practice, even though there is a special law in Germany saying that non-lawyers really have a very limited possibility to um, give uh, legal advice against uh, money. So in this particular case, um, the patent bar um, actually launched a legal action against um, a non-lawyer who offered um, trademark filings um, for profit. And anyone who wants to read the full decision can head over to the website of the Federal Court of Justice and type in Roman 1, so basically um, capitalized I, then ZR, 88/15 so roman numeral 1 zr 88/15 so first of all i must say that this is a really good development in my point of view and secondly uh, this is a warning to uh, a lot of advertising agencies or other digital agencies 
who are offering trademark filing uh, for their clients. Um, they are not lawyers, so they should now be careful offering trademark filing for their clients. So let's head over to today's interview with Jason Bernstein. Ken, take it away. Ralph, I am pleased to be joined today by Jason Bernstein, a partner in the Atlanta office of Barnes & Thornburg, where he is the co-chair of the Data Security and Privacy Practice Group and a member of the firm's intellectual property department. Jason has been practicing IP law for 33 years. In addition, he has a wealth of experience in assisting companies minimize their exposure to data security and privacy risks. According to his firm bio, Jason works with clients to proactively improve data security risk management and develop policies and procedures for incident response. Among his accomplishments, Jason has guided a large food restaurant franchisor on breach response and identification after a security incident at the client's e-commerce provider involving breach of credit card information. In addition, he has advised an online matchmaking service with 37 million users in 43 countries on initial evaluation and response to threat of and subsequent actual exposure of client source code, customer lists, credit card information, and customers' personal relationship details. Jason is a co-inventor on several U.S. patents and has been a guest lecturer at a number of universities, including the University of Georgia, Georgia Institute of Technology, and Georgia State University, as well as various industry trade organizations. Jason holds a BS from Vanderbilt University and a JD from the University of Miami. Welcome, Jason, to IP Fridays. Pleasure to be here. Jason, how did you get involved in privacy and data security issues in your practice? It was a mixture of, uh, of just serendipity and also a desire to learn more. As an IP attorney, I do a lot of technology type of transactions, licensing and software, and more and more clients were just sort of asking about those questions. I also sort of mm -hmm. fell into it uh, probably five plus years ago when I started uh, helping out another one of my partners on uh, some data security issues, and then just uh, wound up getting more and more involved with it, and then finding out there was not a whole lot of people involved with it, uh, clients needed more advice. Yeah, so, and it must be a big part of your practice. It's a probably majority of my practice now is, is data security, and particularly in, in the context of agreements and relationships with clients, mm -hmm. uh, whether they're, they're customers or vendors. Mm -hmm. Let's let's start our interview today with talking about the Internet of Things. Uh, with the growing number of devices connected to the Internet, there's a lot of concern over privacy issues. Uh, can you tell our listeners a bit about these issues? Well, Internet of Things is really, again, since this audience is, is mainly IP and IP-related attorneys, uh, I'm not going to talk at a too high a level. I'm going to try and get down a little more into the weeds. Internet of Things is really just devices that are connected, anything that's connected, whether it's your, your Apple Watch, uh, whether it's a pacemaker, or uh, if it's a washer-dryer, or a bulldozer. Anything that's connected to other things or connected to the world by the Internet is the Internet of Connected Things or the Internet of Things. Um, mm -hmm. Those devices are sometimes talking to each other. They're sometimes talking to people. Uh, or sometimes not talking to anybody, but they're just listening. So some of the concerns uh, sort of come out of the opportunities. The opportunities of these devices are to collect information that can be valuable about the user or about the, uh, the device itself. Uh, the whole area of something called telematics, 
which essentially is uh, devices collecting information about themselves, like uh, you know, 100 bulldozers in different parts of the country, uh, data is collected uh, about the units by a little box on the side, and it's transmitted back to the manufacturer. So the manufacturer can look at you know, mean time to breakdown, um, you know, performance, oil, gas usage in different parts of the country, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and all these kinds of, of, of devices present threats uh, or, or risks or vulnerabilities in terms of the information collected. So, for example, a, uh, a bulldozer or a John Deere tractor's information is not going to really wind up harming anybody. There's no personally identifiable information in there. Um, but you get to devices like medical-related devices, like implants or any kind of shock boxes or things that are connected to users. Now, there is information there which could be gleaned because the, in the device connects wirelessly. When it connects wirelessly, it's got a vulnerability. Yes. So devices that, that can have information collected or taken or stolen or sabotaged. And there's enough science, uh, science fiction movies and stuff to realize that science fiction does sometimes follow reality. Sure. Things can get hacked. Um, and yeah. people can have, have their information uh, twisted uh, or interrupted for that matter. So the, the risks really are to the information and to the use of the information or the use of the boxes themselves. What about sources, Jason? What are some of the main so uh, sources of threats to privacy and data security that companies, let's say, need to be uh, exercising vigilance and employ uh, some strategy for protection? The two main sources of, uh, or, or causes, if you want to call it that, are internal and external. Internal, uh, most of the data breaches that uh, we've seen come via some employee um, oversight, negligence, oops, uh, kind of thing. It, it, sometimes it's, it's in, uh, intentional employee uh, hacking, but usually it's an employee that clicks on a bad email and allows malware to be uploaded, or they inadvertently uh, think they're sending out the company's W-2 information to the tax service, which is legitimate, and it turns out to not be, and all the company's employee information and medical information is compromised. Um, so it's a huge problem is the employee source, because mm -hmm. whether it's law firm or company or nonprofit or government, it's so easy to click on an email which will allow a hacker to get in. The other side is is just the brute force um, uh, hacking, uh, various levels to directly get into the servers or some systems on a website to upload software like keystroke logging software or monitoring software. Um, and, for, for example, uh, with NASDAQ-type companies, the FBI uh, told me that uh, they're one of the greatest targets of hacking because the hackers don't want to steal anything. They want to just listen in on the email conversation of C-level uh, uh, people and wait to hear or to see uh, email traffic on a new product line, uh, a, new, a new business being, that's about to be bought, uh, a clinical trial that goes bad. Right? And they just they basically trade the stock off that information. So they don't want their presence to be known. They're not stealing information. They're just tapping into and listening. Sort of uh, eavesdropping, digital eavesdropping. That's exactly what it is. And that mm -hmm. is, you know, some of the more well-known sources of that are, are in Eastern Europe and Russia among organized crime. Not necessarily state actors, but organized crime. Because they just trade off the information in small amounts, small enough that they're not traced. But they make a huge amount of money and that money is essentially already laundered. 
Wow. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. This is really fascinating information. If you're a patent attorney and you're meeting with your client to discuss their inventions, what are some of the key questions to ask in an attempt to uh, understand potential privacy and data security issues uh, and, to, and to better assist uh, your client? One of the things that, to think about when you're talking to your clients is that your clients may not be even thinking about data security or even data per se uh, or what the data can be used for. For example, you've got a, a, a client that has a new invention for a, a wireless lock for a door, for a house door. Um, your immediate thought will be, well, let's talk about the security concerns here because uh, you know, someone can come around the neighborhood and tap into the Wi-Fi signal, and if that's not password protected well enough, uh, someone could steal the information off, uh, off the, the Wi-Fi, the, 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 um, the key lock, and basically unlock the door and basically wouldn't burglarize the house. So one question is, ask your clients, all right, well, this, this, this device you come up with you know, connects to the Internet. Um, how, what are you doing about security, data security? And how is, it, how is it locked down? On the flip side, ask them, so what are you doing with the information you collect? Well, it might not be part of the patentable invention per se, but it's a good question to ask because you can do more service to your client by exploring the opportunity with the data and what data can be collected and used for, for positive purposes, and then also how the data is collected and how is it vulnerable. And there's so many devices out there for which software is used, but still many companies are not thinking, uh, particularly with much foresight, about how the data can be used. So if you're doing a software patent application, um, try and ask your, client, <clears throat> your clients about what, the, what kind of data could be collected in the, the, uh, the algorithm or the storage array whatever else the software is doing, and try and broaden that out to cover it. Again, it may not be something that's particularly patentable or subject to one of the claims, but it might be able to increase the scope or broaden the scope of the coverage of the patent claims. Yeah, it's almost as if the IP attorney has to have several hats on, the, you know, the IP hat and then the, the data security hat and kind of shift between the two. Right, but in this case, it's not as much having to wear the same same quality of hat. Obviously, if a patent attorney mm -hmm. is looking at the invention, they're usually not thinking very much about data security or data privacy. But it's something to raise because you can certainly develop more insight into it with your client by asking it. Your client may not know because mm -hmm. they're working on the hardware and the software, not thinking about the, the data. But it yeah. also leads to a conversation where you can do much more service to your client by thinking about it even at the earliest stage of uh, reduction of practice of the invention. If you're going to work those, and as we may talk about later, it's the relationships and the customer relationships that you have to think about now in terms of data risk. Yes. Let's talk about trends, you know, in privacy and data security. Uh, daily news reports certainly paint a picture uh, that the intrusions are up uh, given this landscape. Where are we heading and uh, what should companies be thinking about uh, to prevent becoming the next victim? Some of the trends in, in security threats, and, and I'm on the opposite side too, are certainly the, the, the level of company that is being penetrated. It used to be that you just hear at Target, Anthem, Home Depot, et cetera. Um, there, the trend really is, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's moving towards or away from anything, but there's far more small companies that you never hear about that are getting breached. Right? Um, it may not be that it's the big, best hacker in the world, but um, you know, one of our clients at the university got hit uh, with a fairly straightforward uh, wire transfer fraud, and they got hit for a million dollars. 
um, and that was just a university. Yeah. You know, so, you know, one of the trends that I've seen is that over the past couple of years is that smaller and smaller companies are getting hit. One reason is mm-hmm. because they're more vulnerable. You, know, you think about a, client, a company like 3M, right, which got tremendous amounts of intellectual property right, and data. You know, they've got the resources to put into strong security systems, Fifth Third Bank, you know, uh, the Federal Reserve. They've got lots of money to put into this. Smaller companies often do not have the resources or they have not put the resources into data security within their company. So they're getting mm-hmm. hit more because it's, they're simply weaker. And also because a lot of these small companies can be used as a launching pad um, or a vehicle to get into larger companies. So that's one trend. Another mm-hmm. trend is the, the larger prevalence of ransomware, crypto lock, where your, your, basically your systems are locked, your files are locked um, until you pay. Um, the third area of trending is on the flip side is in the protection, which is the use of cyber insurance and was driving cyber insurance, which is still the Wild West in terms of consistency, is that more and more customers are requiring their vendors right, or their providers uh, to have cyber insurance to cover the risk. Mm-hmm. Especially the smaller companies, which if there's a big a big uh, breach, um, the smaller companies would go out of business if they didn't have cyber insurance, which is not typically covered under your commercial general liability policy. So there's a, a trend toward looking at cyber insurance. And the third trend is really is, is focusing on risk management in your agreements. No matter how big or how small a company you are, you want to try and get rid of that risk or, or tamp down on the risk as much as possible. Yes. And, you know, when we talk about these issues, they, they extend worldwide. Um, I'd like to talk about Europe for a second. European concerns uh, are often a topic of conversation. Could you briefly bring our listeners up to date on the latest developments in privacy and data security? Europe has, I wouldn't say traditionally, but, but typically has got a higher level of sensitivity to, to privacy. Uh, Europe is sort of considers it a basic right, meaning you don't have to prove damages in order to be able to have uh, you know, monetary loss, whereas the U.S. requires proof of damages. In, the, in Europe, which was operating under this thing called the safe harbor, um, well, the safe harbor has been essentially invalidated, so they've come up with a new framework, the European Directive, which is going to be coming online in the next year or so, near year or two, which everybody's moving towards. And mm-hmm. the important things, without going into too much detail on it, are that if you are bringing data into the EU or data is flowing out of the EU or being accessed outside the EU, you've got to be concerned about it because Europe has got more issues and more uh, more rules than the U.S. has. So um, you just have to be aware of it if you've got devices uh, or or communications or facilities or subsidiaries or, or support that is in the EU, or if you're coming to the EU and you're using some place in India or Poland or, or, or Bulgaria or whatever, you have to be more aware of what these rules are. Mm-hmm. Are you finding that a number of the matters that you're working on are having a European uh, connection and you're, you're constantly having to, to look at the status of the law there? Yes, and not just Europe, but international. And, and the okay. reason, right, simply, is because of outsourcing. 
and where mm-hmm. you've got a, a U.S. company that is, has some some provider, vendor, whatever, um, you know, giving services in uh, in the U.S., but they're also they got a subsidiary in India or Argentina, or whatever, providing support. Well, that support mm-hmm. may be able to access the client's data um, from outside the U.S. Now, they may not be transferring the data, but it's access. For example, sure, lar- large bank. Um, is wants to use a software company for you know for direct payment, uh, and wants to be able to resell that to its customers. So the bank has to look at the software company and say, okay, where are you storing your data? Oh, we store it in the United States. We got a backup facility in Poland, okay, or in yeah. India, right? Or our tech support group is 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 in uh, is in uh, is in Argentina, right? Well, guess what? Argentina now has as tech support. It's got access to that bank's data when they're doing a tech support call. How do you limit it? So even though the facility may be located somewhere, you have to look at where data is being accessible from. Not just where it's stored, not just where it's transmitted, but where it's accessible, like on a screen. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, you've got a lot more international flavors to be thinking about in agreements. Um, again, much of this is being driven by regulatory, healthcare and, and financial specifically. They've got so much regulation on them that a lot of the customers, example of a bank, for example, you know, are laying on them these very stringent uh, information security requirements about what they can and cannot do with the information they get, like sending it outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming something you just you have to at least be asking about. Yes. Um, let's talk also since this is an intellectual property uh, podcast. Can you talk a bit about intellectual property theft, particularly as it relates to overseas attacks uh, in the United States on privacy and data security? Uh, one of my, my, my contacts at the FBI said that one of the, uh, the bigger sites for being attacked in the United States is Georgia Tech. And really? Because, not for student information, but because they're, they've done a lot of defense research and, uh, and moving more into the civilian commercial area, uh, they've got huge amounts of intellectual property, and they're under constant attack from hackers, uh, which is mostly in the form of espionage type attack. And much of that is state-sponsored, particularly coming from uh, one or two countries in Asia, that they found. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's also true of everything from, from Boeing to MIT to IBM, you know, wherever there are big troves of intellectual property, including law firms, right? not just Mossack mm-hmm. Fonseca in Panama, but law firms are getting hacked uh, routinely, especially uh, ones that have got a lot of intellectual property and uh, merger and acquisition information. Uh, all this kind of information can be, is highly valuable because it's so targeted that only a few players want it, and they don't care about how they, where it comes from. Yeah. That's certainly, you know, from where we are, um, 2016, I mean, if we're looking into next year and the year after, uh, what do you think about where we're headed? I mean, do you think this is going to become a a bigger and bigger problem, or will there be some safeguards, more safeguards put into place that will curtail, uh, you know, these threats? Well, I'm an optimist, but I also think that the bad guys are always one step of the good guys, one step Mm -hmm. ahead of the good guys, because... No matter what systems are put in place, they're a defensive mechanism. And the attacker yes. will always be able to penetrate them to some degree eventually. Right? 
um, just as, as computing power gets stronger and stronger, you know, the more we can uh, we can encrypt, the more likely that someone can de-encrypt. So, and and also because the information is still valuable. Yeah. The the, uh, the, the value of intellectual property is one thing, uh, but on the flip side, the value of uh, you know, credit card numbers on the black market right now is not that great. But the value of medical records, right, healthcare records, is much higher because the uh, the hackers can file false Medicare Medicare claims. That's a big deal. Sure. And people have to remember the hackers are very patient. They're intelligent and they're patient. They know how to, to monitor. They know how to get in. Right? They're patient. They're not just looking for just like a, for just a, you know, an open door. Yes. They know where to go. They know how to look at things. They're very intelligent, very patient, and they, they know, you know where, to, where to sniff. So trends are is um, you know, you've got to cover as much as you can right, in terms of, of prevention and threat, but you also have to look in terms of your own shop in terms of risk management. Now, there's a lot that companies should be doing, uh, whether they're a technology company or not. Yeah, yeah that's risk. a... Yeah, with respect to cybersecurity risk management, uh, how do you manage cybersecurity risk in today's world, uh, particularly when we're looking at agreements and relationships? Well, obviously, from the technical side, you've got companies that are doing the IT and the IS uh, protection. From agreements, and, and, and pretty much all, almost all companies are to some degree you know, customers and their vendors, depending on which hat they're wearing at that particular moment. So one of the programs I teach in the various seminars I do is how to look at vendor risk management. You know, and if you're whatever company you are, you look at the data sort of being a hot potato or a radioactive one, you, know, you don't want it, and you want to minimize your risk. So there, the way I, I, I teach my, my, my classes in this, um, I was looking at how can you manage risk in relationships and agreements. And think about it in terms of five letters, I-D-A-T-A. You can insure mm. against the risk. D, you can diminish the risk. A, you can vo avoid the risk. Say, we're not taking that on. Right? T, you transfer the <laughs> risk. So you're basically going to transfer the risk to somebody else, another vendor. Or A, you accept the risk. So when you're looking at agreements, it's I, D, A, T, A. Insure, diminish, avoid, transfer, accept. But all agreements are, you know, to some degree, involving any kind of data, are, are risk management, risk transfer. So if you are a customer, the trend is simple. Um, if you don't want to get hit with, with the negligence uh, claim, you got to be vetting mm -hmm. your, your your vendors. You, know, you can't just assume the vendor is going to be uh, is going to be doing everything they can, because you might get tagged with lawsuits saying, you know, you never even checked on this vendor. It's kind of like an employee. You know, employee uh, you know commits a, a, a espionage attack on on your client's customer. And the customer sues and says, you know, that you never did a background check, criminal background check on that employee. Same thing. You never did a, a cybersecurity checkup on that vendor before you brought him in. Yes. Okay? The target breach yes. happened because an HVAC vendor got hacked. So in terms of trends and managing relationships, you know, clients should be aware or be made more aware of what kind of control they have in the relationships and agreements, even if they're a small company. Yeah, that's really helpful information. Finally, Jason, what should you and I do to best protect our own privacy uh, in this ever-connected world? 
a couple of tips, um, and, and these are in no particular order. Number one is freeze your credit. Not credit monitoring, freeze your credit. Okay? That is a way to stop uh, the most damaging part of identity theft, which is someone establishing new credit in your name. And it's very easy to do. costs a couple of dollars in some states, ten, five, ten dollars with Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian, uh, you know, the three credit reporting agencies. Just get that done, period. Mm-hmm. Freeze your credit. Second, forget passwords. Okay? Use passphrases. Yeah. They'll have a passphrase, something unique. Not row, row, row your boat, but something that's, that's easily memorable because the longer it is and the more... Uh, is not known. I mean, row, row, row your boat is obviously fairly easily hackable. But using a passphrase, perhaps with a couple of digits in the middle, so that when you know your your Yahoo email is is theoretically hacked and you got to change your mm-hmm. password, you don't have to change the whole thing. You just change two numbers, right? But it's still got the rest of the passphrase. So use passphrases, not passwords. Third is keep a backup of your backup offline for your personal stuff, your photographs, your Quicken account, your music. Right? If you get hit with ransomware, right, everything on your entire Wi-Fi network at home is subject to being locked up because right? the software will infiltrate every device it can, including your backup drives. So if you've got a backup drive and you're religiously backing up every night, so what? If you get hit with ransomware, it's going to hit that backup drive. Take another backup of that backup drive and to keep that offline. Should be in a fireproof safe or something like that. You know, the four things that are important that are changing enough. Jason, lots of information here and lots of things that people should, you know, think about and also uh, you know, when they're talking with their clients, uh, raise awareness. Thanks so much. We've covered a lot of ground and thank you for being a guest on IP Fridays. You're quite welcome. If your listeners have any questions, you know how they can contact us. Happy to chat. Excellent. Thanks again, Jason. You're welcome. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.